Welcome to GERT, conversations about architecture, entrepreneurship and life. We are proud to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, to recognise their ongoing connection to country, land and waters that were never ceded, and to pay our respect to Elders, past and present. Your hosts are Monique Woodward, Director of Wawawa Architecture, Mother to Cleo, Recording on Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne, and Nick Brunson, Principal and Creative Director of Nick Brunson, Father to Bo and Minnie, who's in Perth recording on Wajuk Noongar Buja. Mon and Nick are celebrated industry thought leaders. Both have won the Australian Institute of Architects National Emerging Architect Prize and are Dulux Study Tour Prize winners. They bring candour and vulnerability to conversations about creativity and personal expansion. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to Gert. Super excited about our guest today. We've got Quan Yeomans with us. He's a creative powerhouse. I know him through his work with the band Regurgitator, which if you're a child of the 90s, were impossible to miss. But more recently, he's been leading Regurgitator's Pogogo Show, an album of pop punk for kids, which as a father of two is the best bloody thing that's happened to me. So instead of badly rapping the song formerly known as or I Will Lick Your Asshole, uh, I get to bang out with my daughters to The Box, a song about how boxes are better presents than actually what comes inside them. And what drew, drew me to this conversation was the confidence to change and move with age and audience and embrace fun, play and silliness, all while still maintaining the same sense of quality and a deep musical creativity. Uh, Quan and Regurgitator can be found on Instagram at Regurgitators and Regurgitators Pogogo Show. Let's get into it. Quan, welcome. Thank you, Nick and Monique. Thank you for having me. So in the pre-interview, we were just talking about Architects God Complex. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My girlfriend this... has a bit of a beef with, with Architects, actually. Oh, go on. Yeah, she constantly is. Uh, she's an academic and works in um, fashion. And uh, she just seems to think that um, a lot of architects design spaces um, but don't really think about the people who have to inhabit them a lot of the time. I don't know if you guys come up with that, come up against that very often. Oh, yeah, we hate people. It- people ruin buildings. <laughs> yeah, people <laughs> ruin buildings? Like what? People ruin a- buildings. Uh, I thought- no, 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 no. Buildings for <laughs> photographs that you send out in the world that then get you more clients yeah. and then, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for clearing that up. Yeah, guys. No, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, See, so uh, we, we, yeah, we got I'm, them down the list as kind of a little annoying nuisance, you know. Oh, shit, yeah. Someone to, people. Yeah. That's right. They have to, we yeah. have to have I, my, my new thing is that I just blame male architects because we're a female-led practice. And oh. so I'm like, oh, it's just classic male oh, architects. It's the fucking patriarchy know? again, isn't it? It's always yeah, the it's the patriarchy. Like, that's why you've got us on board. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, enough about you guys. Let's talk about me. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know where to start. Um, I've got, I don't your father. Know. Let's let's start with your father. My father. <laughs> well, no, maybe, father. maybe we should say that we, you know, what Mon and I kind of like are trying to have a bit of sort of introspection here, and we go, why why the fuck are we doing this? Who are we choosing? Why are we speaking to you know all these people? And we just kind of worked out that we're actually just trying to collect gurus. And so Quan then was like, well, my father was actually a psychologist and he's obviously giving off some kind of spiritual guru vibes as well, which is, you know, why he's now come into our orbit. So please, I, master, I don't know if I'm going to qualify. I really don't know if I'm going to ever qualify as a guru to anyone. But there was one thing about uh, my father that was quite odd, something I didn't discover until much later on. There was a little book that I found on my bookshelf in my mother's house long after my da- dad had died. Um 
which was a book by a, um, a very amazing Buddhist monk called Thich Nhat Tang, who's a uh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk. And it was, uh, I'd, I'd never read it before and I had a look through it and I noticed that my father had scribbled all his notes through it. So he'd obviously read this and this was a very important book to him. I'd never, ever heard of it. Never, he'd never spoken to me about it before ever, but I, just looking at the way that he'd um, noted it and, and, and uh, no, obviously read the hell out of it, made me think that he'd instilled a lot of the, the wisdom that might have been in those kind of books into me. And that, that was kind of a revelation to me because when I read the book, it did re- read like a manual to my mind in a weird way. I don't know if you've ever read any of his, but being peace yeah. is like stunning. It's very thin, which is what attracted to me for, I hate. Yeah, yeah books. No, I like books like that. That's good. <laughs> it's really small. Um, but yeah, I totally recommend it. So what's it called? Being peace. Right. Amazing. It's very simple and it's a very, very practical guide to Buddhism um, by this guy who lives in France, I believe. He escaped Vietnam and, and moved to moved to France. So have you done, you've taken that with uh, the raising of your own kids or you just, you know, that's. You know, I was considering because um, recently my, my kid, my eldest kid has kind of is starting to show signs of ADHD, which I can't really ignore anymore. And, and my ex-wife and I have kind of started um, taking him to psychologists and, and trying to give him the tools to, to um, work through it and, you know, understand his brain a bit better and uh, let the people around him know what his brain is, is, is like. Um, and I, I have actually thought about reading him that book just, just without any kind of warning or anything, just little bits of it every night uh, before he goes to bed. Uh, I haven't actually done that yet, so I, I don't know if it's going to make any difference at all. But, yeah, I mean. It, well, parenting has, parenting's all about best intentions, isn't it? You don't ever have to follow through with anything. It is, right? Yeah. I mean, that there's that um, Gibran. <laughs> I really love the Gibran yeah. um, quote, quote about you know, you, uh, your kid is like an arrow in a, in a bow and you fire it off and you can guide it. But that's once it leaves your, your bow, it's, that's, you don't know where it's going to land. Yeah. Kind of thing. yeah that's, that's, that's quite the, true. Yeah. It's like the, the greatest shock of parenting is, you know, before you have kids, you're like, I'm going to do this and my kids are going to be like this and then they're going to do that and I'm going to form that. And then they come out and they're like, hello, here I am. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. And you're like, oh, fuck. Okay. Right. You know, do you, do you both have kids? Yes. Yeah. yeah so right. I have um, a 14 month uh, little baby girl and oh, wow. um, the other day she blew on her peas because they were too hot and I'm like, oh, my God, you have the cognition to, like, acknowledge that something is hot and then blow on it. And I was, I don't know why, that just struck me as this really kind of momentous turning point uh, in her life. I don't know. But Gee, yeah, I haven't I, even reached that point yet. I'm constantly <laughs> burning my Burning my mouth on bees constantly. That's brilliant. She's a genius. Um, <laughs> she's gi- she's I've gifted. Got, got, it's true. Yeah, definitely. Now let's be honest. I've got, guys two, like- I got two daughters who are sorry, two daughters who are four and two, and they just run around the house doing fart noises constantly. So that's you know, yeah, cool, cool. Yeah. And, and, and no how do you Chloe. feel about parenting? Exactly. Do you feel like it's come up to your expectations, or it's it's below, or how do you feel about it in general? Because I'm always interested to know how honest people can be about parenting. And it's something that oh, okay. I see. It's like it's the it's the best thing that'll ever happen to you, and the worst thing that'll ever happen to you all at the same time. And I had right. one person say to me, "It's like it's fifty one percent awesome and forty nine percent terrible, and it's like the one percent mm-hmm. either way makes all the difference." And and your thoughts? How how old are your kids? My kids are seven and four. Both boys, both incredibly energetic. Uh, the older one even more so and really difficult to control. So I don't even bother half the time. It's very difficult. Um, 
But I, I had this weird experience uh, when my wife was pregnant with the first child and I was on tour in Vietnam. I think it was in Saigon. And I uh, was outside this shitty little punk venue going, oh, my God, I'm about to become a father. I think it was due in like two months or something like that. And I noticed this old, like burnt out veteran looking guy smoking a cigarette, just leaning up against a bar. And he kind of asked me how I was. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was excited about having a kid. And he just turned to me and like his, his cigarette just took it out of his mouth momentarily and just said that kids wreck everything. And he looked so fucking depressed and disappointed with life. And I just said, God, oh, you're a really burnout fuck. Why would you give me that? Why would you say that? I'm about to have one. Um, but to be honest, I feel like his advice was the most true, true and honest that I've ever had from uh, a parent, really. I mean, they do they tear everything down and then you kind of spend a lot of your life just rebuilding essentially yeah. yourself and your ideas about life and and uh, what parenting actually means and what it is. So, yeah, I really I, I have to put it out there to thank that 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 poor sod for, for um, sharing this depressing thought with me at that particular time. <laughs> I think he was you know, most on the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah I feel like heard. there's there's an alignment between the three of us. Yeah, that's <laughs> I think that that's um, that's why we're doing this podcast. Like, what are we even doing with our lives anymore? I know, um, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's funny because as a as a creative person, I find myself regretting having kids from time to time, and I feel terrible about it because I love my kids, but I also just think, oh my god, it's so hard. Why did I do this to myself? And uh, yeah, I'm I'm always interested to see how other people feel about it. Yeah, it's hard. It's so hard. It's ridiculous. And especially, you know, having, for me, having a baby in a pandemic um, was ridiculously hard. Um, yeah. Like they were, it was, you know, lockdown one in Melbourne and they were trying to weigh her in winter wow. on the front doorstep because the nurses didn't want to come in. And yeah, I'm just what? like, what is even happening? I'm like, she's, yeah, it was crazy. Totally it crazy. Is. So, yeah, I, f- I feel that a very, uh, very much. Well, um, let's talk about the show because obviously that <laughs> that was a bit of a, an, uh, an antidote maybe. No. The show? Yeah, the <laughs> what, show. What, the show. What show? <laughs> your show. Oh, that show. Yeah. The Pogo Go show? Maybe. Maybe. Was that your show? <laughs> uh, yeah. No. So we did, I mean, we did this for you, Nick. Uh, we did. We did. Did it for me. Thank you. A little bit. Yeah, people like yeah. you who are just like, oh my god, I can't handle the wiggles. I can't handle Bluey much longer. They're great, but I've just had it to my. I can't. Just the amount of in- enthusiasm and the amount of of um, of genuineness uh, <laughs> in that stuff just drives me crazy a little bit. So I just <laughs> we kind of felt felt like there was just a need for some realism and a little bit of fun uh, around it. So that's why we did. Did the Pogo Go show. Yeah, and I think the thing that like interests me the most was actually kind of, you know, like like the continuation of like a creative career that like, you know, you don't sort of where you start might not be where you finish and you, you might start in a place and even though potentially you find success there or you find yourself and your identity and how you kind of, you know, express yourself, you're not then tethered or tied to that thing as a sort of a sense of self-identity through, you know, the years of your life and as you move through. So like, you know, I, I really loved just, you know, the balls to kind of pivot from being regurgitated to like now we're going to put on colourful clothing and clothing and dance around and make kids happy, which was like, yeah, I thought, awesome. 
Oh, thanks. I mean, I, I think there's there's this kind of school of of people who do have success through consistency, and I you know I respect that a lot. There's a lot of great artists that do their job incredibly well, and they kind of they have an end goal in mind. I feel like they, they're career artists, and they they have this kind of clear picture of where they they seem to anyway. They seem to kind of know well. This is my core being, and this is my core artistic being, and I'm going to work towards something by just you know, carving out my niche and doing it that way. But I don't feel like as a band we've ever done that. I mean, we've, we're extremely inconsistent. And, you know, the fact that we had a hit record in the 90s was such a, a random thing in my mind. Um, it could have happened to anyone and it didn't feel like we deserved it to me. Um, so everything is a gift. And if you, we, just, we just kind of want to have fun and keep on having fun. I mean, I just spent the last like three hours writing a song about my girlfriend's vagina. For God's sake! I mean, that's that's the kind of thing I'm doing at the moment. And it's like, but that's the kind of that's the kind of thing kind of, you've always done, right? There's like I mean, you pretty know, much. Was it? It wasn't I mean, Blubber like, Boy, basically about that. Yeah, Blubber Boy was an adaptation of an Eskimo uh, Inuit um, fairy tale from this incredible book of uh, a compendium compendium of fairy tales by Angela Carter who's a great feminist writer if you're interested in following her up if you haven't read her stuff she's really cool but there's these um there's these two volumes of uh, incredible fairy tales that aren't dumbed down or aren't disnified at all they so they all have like horrific kind of endings and the Inuit Inuit ones are the most out there and then some of the um, the uh, indigenous Native American ones are also great. They're usually about farts or like <clears> some <throat> witch thing to do with someone who can't stop flatulence or something like this. Really bizarre. Or their cousins are having an affair with their mums or <clears> something <throat> something weird like that. So they're really fascinating. And that was one of the one of the ones. It was called Blubber Boy as well. It's like a great story. And I'm, I'm finding I'm finding consistent that. themes of farts and vaginas through you know <laughs> most of everything. You know, if there's one thing that defines me, I think it's the fact that I, I really just wanted to, when I meet adults and I see that they're buried under a rubble of, of adulthood, I just want to dig them out. That's, that's all I really wanted to do in my life. You can't, so can't this, save everyone, Quan. I know I can't <laughs> save everyone, but doing doing what I do is kind of a representation of that yeah, that's ideal, true. I think. Well, I guess yeah, that, I that's feel like I'm you. <laughs> No, I was going to say that um, I feel like I spend most of my time like designing uh, just secret vaginas all over our buildings and there's like little bums everywhere and it's really? like, what should this detail be? It's like mm, something more yonic, I'm thinking. Wow. So, secret yeah. vaginas? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, you, you, might be, you might be doing what you know every male architect has been doing for the last 400 years and just, you know, it's been throwing yeah. dicks everywhere. It's good, you know. It's I know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, our work that's is just nice like balance. tits everywhere. It's, yeah. It's like, Amazing. I mean, what's, what's that like line? Like music is liquid architecture and architecture is frozen music. Is yeah. that it? Uh, architecture really? is architecture is music frozen in time. Yeah. Is that, who said that? I don't know. I picked it up somewhere. My my uncle probably was, some was old a music. Male. Yeah, I don't know. My, uncle, man, my uncle was a music um, teacher or academic at the University of Melbourne, and we were walking around the grounds there once, and he was like, "Oh, Nick," and obviously, as you know, you know, architecture is just music frozen in time, and I was like, kind of, you know, I was like 22 and pretending to be more worldly than I was. And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course, Lynn. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then, you know, but yeah, it's like, it's totally true. Like every time I kind of think about it, it's like the great thing about music is you can kind of always like kind of change it and move it and test things and do things. But in architecture, like takes, you know, three years to like do something once. Like each, you know, each building is a track, but you can only like write, you know, so however many of them. 
Yeah, and right. It's like, yeah. But I always always see that. It still resonates with me because, like, when, you know, like, you listen to music and um, I'm quite, you'll be really impressed here. Like, I won campus bands, like, back when I was 18. And so, like, I was, nice. on, the tra- <laughs> I was on the trajectory, mate. I was like, you were. Yeah. And then, no, and then you, then God said no. No, then, no, then, then, I, then, I, had to build, then, <laughs> then I had to build a model, you know, and submit it the next day or something. So, I was like, no. Are the only archi- uh, I was just thinking of architecture and music quotes, and I think there's that Elvis Costello one that's something about uh, describing music as like dancing to architecture. That's the only quote that I know that combines the two. It might have been Costello. I don't know. What happened to him? Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Sorry, so I, just Googled, I just Googled that quote, and it was Johann Wolfgang von Goth. Was it? 18th century. Oh, Goethe. Goethe said Goethe. it. Yeah. Gertie, wow. Well, there you go. That's that's actually better. <laughs> better than Elvis <laughs> Costello. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Sorry, I think I interrupted you, Nick. What were you going no, to say? Uh, no, I was, I was just going to go on a kind of another little rant that was going to make me sound more, you know, intelligent than I actually am. But, you know. What, um, can I ask you what that – there's this one guy that actually my, my partner introduced me to who's an architect who just did these crazy fucking weird-ass watercolours, uh, really just – Bent looking, and then he turned the buildings into the watercolors. Basically, uh, what's his Le- name? Lebius Woods, Russian. Lebius Lebius Woods, or um, he's a Russian guy, I believe. Oh, who was the also guy who did all those constructivist drawings? Um, really strange. I got uh, I think I got like it. like I that kind of like around. you know what like sort of early. Uh, early 20th century or, or you don't, don't know? No, it literally, they just looked like watercolours that he would just paint and then he would build those buildings. Oh, Walter, Walter, Walter Gropius, maybe? Uh, it might be Gropius. I can't remember. No, no, name. Walter Gropius is Bopa House. What's the guy's name? Pichler. Um, Pichler, is just reading any bit bells? I don't, no, know, okay. I don't know. This, this, this is thrilling listening for the audience. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry. I know nothing like, about oh, architecture. Rem- <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Uh, but, I, I mean, I think it is, you know, I mean, it is nice to kind of, um, <clears throat> you know, one of the most fascinating things of architecture is you produce something and then you suddenly it pops out a building three, yeah, as Nick said, three or four years later. Yeah. And, but it well, you know, this does. is the way that I think you can think about art and that is art is time condensed. You look at a book. It could take that author 20 years to write that book, yeah. but you get to read it in three, four, five hours, and it's just that that all that person's time is just condensed in this tiny short work, three yeah. minutes long songs. could take me six months to write it. Yeah. You know, that, and and Leonard Cohen spent that's, that's, a year on the lyrics and one of those, one of those like, I think Hallelujah took him a year to write. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's go, gone. That's it. That's your life. Yeah, that's right. I, I heard another so great, great quote, which was like, "All all art is never finished, just merely abandoned." Is yeah, in- that's one of the things I, I've been struggling with that a lot. I, yeah. I don't think I've been able to finish anything for ten years, yeah. basically. And there is something really kind of, um, I think there's something really necessary about that uh, having it snatched from you or having it taken away. Because obviously, when we were when we were recording um, in the '90s, we were on a schedule and deadlines. Obviously, you understand the importance of deadlines, being architects and in the field. If you don't have that, you you don't want to abandon them. There's nothing forcing to abandon, so you don't get that really important moment of going, "No, this is not yours anymore. You've got to let it go." And if you don't have that, you don't have that kind of like, oh, "Fuck, I'm gonna hate you for doing this to me for the rest of my life." And of course, you don't resent it after you know a week or two. You forget about it. If you don't have that moment. Then you'd really, you're really missing something vital from your art practice. I think. Yeah, yeah. 
Which is just living, so to- living as high anxiety creative people. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> which is probably why I haven't been able to produce anything for like a decade, apart from the Pogo Go show, which was just, <laughs> you know. Just for your kids' benefit and, and mine. Yeah, yeah, just fucking around. Most of the best stuff is, is done just fucking around, of course. Yeah. But it is sort of funny because I guess <clears throat> architects, you know, we might do um, – you know, 20 different iterations of a tile pattern and, you yeah. know, at what point is that work and what point is that just fucking around, you know? Yeah, sure. But someone has to actually go, no, that's enough. <laughs> Let it go. <laughs> Put it on the wall. Be done with it. Yeah. You're out of time. You're out of time. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I mean, I think that, that that urgency can kind of, um, you know, it sort of prevents that procrastination, which we can you know, get in our own heads and it's, it's sort of, um, it is a super fine line. Yeah, totally. It's really interesting that all of the singles, uh, that do really well on, I mean, from my experience in, in pop music are the ones that you toss off in like five minutes, yeah. like literally all the biggest songs that I've ever had done really <clears> fast <throat> and all the ones that you labor over, no one gives a shit about. You could spend like, you know, months and months on the lyrics to get them just right. No one ever talks about those album tracks. They always become album tracks. No, I've, I've said this to. It's really hard to do it to clients, but like I've said that all like all my best buildings, all the ones that have like kind of done really well, are all the ones that I've mm. like I've had the idea for it literally in twenty seconds and like done a sketch. Mm. Like, that's it. That's the idea. And then it's basically yeah. then you're basically a midwife trying to birth this thing for two years. You know, it's like and the, but over that creative moment, it happens in the twenty seconds that it all kind of congeals and comes together. Yeah, it's just pretty much it. Except that, you know, we have to go, as architects, you're going through, you know, your own team and permits and council and physical shit and building it and getting all that stuff. And as a musician, you sit in the studio and hopefully you can bang it out a bit quicker than that. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, it's interesting. When you're working on your own, there's this kind of internal bureaucracy that goes on, I think, because uh, it sounds like there's a lot of bureaucracy with what you do, like in terms of all those permits and other huge bodies that you have to deal with committees and all that sort of stuff and ethics and all that sort of stuff. Whereas uh, a lot of the musicians that are out there today are working on their own or working with a producer or something and, and having the luxury of a producer is so great because it's that's that someone just going, it's great, leave it, just just move on. But yeah, when you're working on your own, it's I, I feel like my brain is like a stranger with candy. I was thinking about this the other day, what what my creative process was a bit like. And it's a, a little bit like a stranger with candy that you're trying to steal the snacks off without getting fucked by. You know, that's the that's that's kind of how it feels to me. Or just there's like threads that you're constantly grabbing at just to follow them down to and they're only momentary threads and they just disappear so quickly and if you don't follow them down you lose the you lose that moment well it's i would i would think that being in the studio like on your own is almost like <clears throat> i keep saying the worst thing you ever, could ever get given as an architect is like a virgin site an unlimited budget and no brief because it's like where the fuck do you start but like you uh-huh. know working on your own in the studio you don't have the constraints of like you know am i working is it within the confines of the band you know of an album Where's my band? Yeah. You know, like, is there I a know. timeline? Like, what's it's fucked? Yeah, <laughs> it's totally yeah. fucked. <laughs> like, that's why. I mean, the only reason I'm getting anywhere now with these couple of EPs that I'm currently working on is because they're concept based. If I yeah. don't have a concept, <clears throat> I'm screwed. Essentially. Have you seen um, or have you heard of uh, Lars von Trier's The Five Abstractions? It's totally no. weird, but Lars von Trier is, you know, like whatever is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but he, he does this thing where he takes this kind of like I can't remember what it was like this kind of avant garde French movie. And brings the director in and says, okay, I'm going to fuck with you now. So what I want you to do, that's a piece of cinematic masterpiece. It's like a 20-minute movie or something. And I'm going to yeah. make, I'm going to make uh, like 
you're going to have to remake that movie five times and each time you remake it, I'm going to give you three different rules you have to adhere to. And like one yeah. of it is like, you know, it has to be in Cuba, it has to be shot with this lens, it has to be done with this, you have to re- or you have to rewrite it. And like by setting yeah. those boundaries, the, the, the original film gets remade these five different times and totally the restrictions kind of create this new sort of freedom or this new real uh, interesting options and possibilities that you probably, you know, if you're kind of sitting there and going, all right, remake this movie, you go, well, it would feel impossible to know where to start. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, computers would make it even worse because, I mean, uh, if you're working in a, on a computer, there's the studio inside is this endless amounts of VSTs, like all these different effects that are just available to you. There's no tactile kind of touching. You're just constantly tweaking these little knobs that are not even there. And you can change to anything at any time and re- rework everything. I think a, a lot of the great producers uh, will create their own restrictions. I mean, like uh, the Tame Impala guy is just locks himself in a room in Perth, uh, by himself on the beach, uh, and just does everything himself with tape, all physical stuff. No, I don't think he uses any computers. If I'm, I mean, I might not be correct in that, but I think that he, he does, he does create those restrictions and that's what makes him really great at what he does. So you have to have incredible dis- discipline if you are using computers these days, I think to just go, I'm not going to do I'm not going to fuck with it constantly and, and even though I can, I've got to like let it go or I've got to only use these plugins and that's it. Um, and it's a real, it's real art form. Well, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, it's got to be a tool that, you know, you're using at your disposal rather than it, det- it defining, you know, what you can do, you know, can't like yeah, exactly. restrict you or, yeah. You just get um, crippled by that choice, I guess. Can you talk to us about what, you know, like an average day of yours would look like? Like what do, what's your creative process? <laughs> I mean, are, we, are um, we talking COVID or, or pre-COVID? What are we talking here, Mon? I'm much the same, to be honest, because I'm an introvert. So COVID hasn't been that bad for me. I mean, I haven't been able to play a show for 20 months, which is kind of ridiculous. The last show I played was my mother's 80th and my girlfriend's 35th birthday, and we managed to slip it in in April, God knows how. So we had like 450 people in the, um, the POW, Prince of Wales. And that was great. Uh, she's still going strong. She parties like fuck. You wouldn't wouldn't believe. She's more rock and roll than me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so my days are kind of similar now that I'm I'm separated with my wife and she lives with someone else. Uh, I only have my kids half the week, which is fucking awesome. Like I can't. Uh, like it's just I got my life back basically. It was great. Um, and I could feel like an adult and a human being for half the week. And then the other half of the week, I kind of focus on them and I, you know, hang with them and do the best I can. Homeschooling. <laughs> I was going to make a meme the other day because I watched, have you watched uh, Nicholas Cage's Vampire's Kiss before? No. <laughs> and you should watch it. It's one of the greatest performances ever. Um, but he, he, he goes to a psychiatrist and he's, he's reciting the ABC. He's like a fucking crazy man. Like his physical performance in that film is beyond normal like he he actually picks up a live cockroaches and puts it in his mouth and and eats it on screen um <laughs> so he's reciting the abcs for this psychiatrist just off the fucking hook and it, it is literally like homeschooling i swear to god that is just how i felt trying to homeschool <laughs> so yeah that's the only thing i've disliked about covid just the <clears throat> homeschooling but um i've managed to get them back into school a bit more lately because my wife my ex-wife is a um uh, a nurse so we managed to get him back in. So now like four or five days a week, I literally just sit in front of my computer and I try and write songs about vaginas and about um, my life. And uh, I record what I can, what I've thought about 
after hopping into bed the night before, generally something will pop in my head and I'll have to write it down in Ulysses or whatever app I'm using. And I'll get up in the morning and make a coffee. I drink mochas, mochas, sorry, <laughs> um, because I, they seem to be bearable for me. I, 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 when I became a parent, I started drinking coffee. I never, I never had any vices apart from chocolate before that. And uh, yeah, so mochas are my vice now and I, I need them. I literally cannot function without them now. So I'll get up and do that and then um, have breakfast and then start, try and force myself to work a little bit. And a lot of the best stuff that I do is literally when I'm at the park with my kids and I see that they're playing around um, and they're fine. And then I can get on my phone and I'll start writing. So I've learned to work in the cracks a lot more successfully than actually when I sit down and spend a whole day and I've got, this is my day, I'm going to work. And I find that I just go round and round in circles, generally speaking. I've been pretty good this week, but some weeks it's really bad and I literally will get nothing done. Um, and yeah, apart from that, just chores and stuff. It's really boring. It's, so that, it's that, really I think boring. you just summed up parenting just perfectly, the working in the cracks. That's, that's, yeah. Yeah. that's yeah. it. You become incredibly good at it. It's exactly it. And it's sort of um, almost like the the walk from my house to the park and being able to have like Cleo in the pram and I'm just like trying to madly do something on my phone. And yeah, it's just right. those small moments, I think. It's a, um, it is quite amazing. And in some ways that is the, that, they're the restraints that I have now. Those mm. artistic restraints are now provided to, to me courtesy of my children just being incredibly fucking demanding constantly, <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> which is great. I mean- is, I've got two questions here, which is, is 20 months the longest you've ever gone without playing a show? And how, like, what have you found? Like, what's the kind of fallout from that band? Do you like, as an introvert, I'm a, like, I'm also a severe introvert, but like, and that really surprises people when I say that. And I feel like you might be the same, which is that, you know, like everyone goes, oh no, he's totally comfortable, you know, doing podcasts on stage, doing speeches, whatever, but like, I need to be in like recharging in my own space. So like without having, but you know, it also means that, you know, like, Introvert, extrovert, it's not your one or the other. It's less like a preference, like being left-handed or right-handed. So have you felt that, you know, because you're constantly using your right hand, your left hand's withering and dying? Oh, that's, that's not that a don't really, take that where really, I'm, Don't take that where I'm, you think, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I miss my friends, which are my band now. They're, they're more like <clears> a family to me. I miss them and I miss the, I miss the whole uh vibe of being around them more than the actual uh, job itself. I love the job and it is really great to have that energy on stage and to be so extroverted and to be around people all the time. It's a very extroverted job. I couldn't think mm. of a more extroverted job nah. than mine. But I, uh, yeah, I'm like you, I need my alone time. I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm actually an only child. So I think that's probably why I'm the way I am. I'm quite confident and I can talk to people and I like talking to strangers. But if I don't spend 80% of my time like alone and I find that working on computers this way really suits me. Ben, my bass player is completely opposite. He's an extroverted guy. He needs to jam. He needs to be with a band to create music. And I haven't jammed with anyone for like 20 years, pretty much. I just don't like it. <laughs> I just do not like it. So how does, how does that go then on tour? Like, cause again, I'm just drawing parallels to my own life when I've had to like do a lot of traveling for projects and you turn up and they want to take you to site and then, they take you back to the hotel and then dinner's booked like, you know, half an hour later and you're just like, I just want to be, you know, like I, I just want to be left alone. You know, let me well, let me do the things I need to do. But then you don't need to like throw out the hospitality, you know, rigmarole for all this sort of stuff. I can take care of myself. Like, Sure, sure. 
Like, how, like, so how, uh, how and we, we have know, a we, we, we just manage yourself we, and kind of go like, yeah, yeah. We work for ourselves, so we don't. We're not like dealing with clients in that regard. Like, I deal with clients for an hour while I'm on stage, and I'll give them anything they want. Providing it's you know not ridiculous, I don't sign breasts anymore. I just refuse. Um, <laughs> that's like one of the lines I drew a long time ago. But um, apart from that, yeah, there I'm. We're there for them that for that hour, hour and a half, maybe you know half an hour after the show, whatever. And after that, we do whatever we want. And nine times out of ten, I'll just go back to my room. And I've always done that. I've never gone. I miss so many great parties because I've just like, and I just don't have the energy for it. Sorry, you know, so many great like anecdotes that my bass player has about meeting all these incredible people um and i you know i have nothing because i've every single time i've gone you know what i think i'd rather just be alone thanks and that's kind of what i do but i do have the luxury of doing that you know there is no kind of there's no necessary parties there's no necessary kind of client meetings or dinners that i have to go to after a show that's the job and that's it. No, no, so no, no label pressures or anything anymore. God, no. We haven't had label pressures for ages. And to be honest, um, we've always had a buffer with our manager. I've never had to deal with them um, particularly because they're, they're just not – they were never our type of people. And I knew they were they were literally salespeople and they didn't – the guys at the top really don't care about anything but bottom lines. They don't care about the art or the music. The closest person we had was an A&R guy who was, you know, in our court. But to be honest, I, I just had nothing in common with those people at all. It just felt really weird. I was actually terrified signing that contract. I remember the feeling just thinking, do I really want to get in bed with these kind of people and, you know, make their money while they're kind of just doing all this shit stuff that they clearly are. They're just not you know, and, and it was a real ethical dilemma for me at the time. But of course, you know, without them, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have sold anywhere near as many records as we did. I've got lots of thoughts and questions here, but maybe I'll leave it to you, Mon. I'm jumping in too much. <clears throat> no, 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 no. Um, no, I mean, I guess, you know, we have parallels, of course, with our own industry and that, um, you know, we spend a lot of time doing work for a whole gamut of different types of people from developers to, um, you know, for, from, you know, really lovely, uh, residential, you know, homeowners or philanthropists and, you know, they have their own jobs and their own, um, vices, you know, whether we're working for a lawyer and we're, we're having to be very litigious, you know, during, you know, administering that contract. And, um, you know, I, I guess it is sort of just interesting, the kinds of people that you, you, you do get into bed with essentially um, and for quite a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the, you, it is interesting sorry, Juan. When you, where you draw that line between, I mean, it's an interesting line uh, between industry and, and, um, and art. And it's almost like a line between thought and action. Like in some ways I've always thought of, action as art, pure creativity and industry as thinking and, and the thoughts and context around what you do in that way. And it's always made me very, very wary of industry. Whenever things become industrious and are about creating money or monetizing what you do as art, things start to fuck up, generally speaking. Like the art starts to go awry, generally speaking. But the idea as well is that the two things are supposed to have like an interplay but not become combined or be one or the other. Like you're supposed to drop out of thought 
things that touch industry and then industry does what it does with it, but then you stay at that place of thought to keep developing and re-engaging at the Ideally. right times. Ideally, but, but I think that's contracts a and life and all sorts of things coming away. Yeah, Mortgages yeah. and kids and food. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But, you know, I think it's um, inevitable, right, that, you know, that um, the nuance of that line gets blurred because, you know, you get pulled in different directions and then it's about recalibrating and, and um, setting new boundaries. As you, yeah, as you progress. But also I think setting boundaries but also projecting into the world, you know, what you stand for and trying to then kind of like attract the people that align to that, which is all the sort of talk we've done in the past, Mon, about, you know. Like the, the, <laughs> Manifesting. Yeah, but also like, you know, the kind of even in terms of practice and, you know, like with B Corp and having reconciliation action plans and, you know, environmental sustainability credentials and all that sort of stuff, which, you know, kind of signals this is the sort of people we are, this is who we want to do business with. But, you know, it's then very, very hard to kind of, you know, audit everyone because then you basically need someone to kind of go, you know, anytime you do a project, you're just sort of going, who are we working with? What are they about? Does it align? And, you know. Yeah, exactly. There's a level of hypocrisy that you have to kind of be be satisfied with, I think, in your life. I know on some level there's always something there, unless you're a Buddhist monk living in the, you know, the jungle. Yeah, well, you're, you're wearing a Chanel hoodie and I'm wearing a um, always was, well, always will be T-shirt. So, you know, I think there's kind of it's – This is actually this is actually what I'm I know, I could see it just <laughs> – So, talk to us No, you go. I was going to say you could you could see I was nervous about today because I made sure that I wore this t-shirt so Quan would see it and go, "Oh yeah, cool, right? Where? Yeah, hopefully, you know." What is <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh God. My my dad worked with uh, Indigenous. Oh, he had a severe white guilt, like severe. He would he had the opportunity to be the uh, head of Sydney Hospital as a psychiatrist, which wow. is the top job you can get in the country. He yeah. said, "Fuck off! I'm not going to deal with it. I don't want to deal with you guys." And he basically went off on his own, real outsider, and worked in Aboriginal communities and worked for um, minority women, particularly with um, all all kind of psych- psychiatric. Um, mental health stuff. Um, so I, I saw him do that with his life, and I felt like it was an amazing thing for him to do. But there was, I just couldn't cope with the fact that he just seemed deeply unhappy on his deathbed. I don't think he really achieved what he wanted to achieve, and I think that he got that because he was saved by a, an Aboriginal tracker when he was a baby. And he oh, remembers wow. distinctly seeing the two two black sticks picking him up uh, from a bushfire. They killed his uncle on a horse, apparently, because uh, he lived um, somewhere in the Richmond area, I think, in New South Wales. His, his father was a quite a famous, successful farmer who uh, created Keyline, who uh, I think the, uh, Bill Mollison took a lot of the permaculture stuff from. Um, it's all about how to create sustainable water conditions on mm-hmm. semi-arid land and, and basically make it workable again. Incredible yeah. man. Yeah. He wrote a great book called The City Forest, which is uh, really great. Um, but, yeah, I just felt like it's it's a very, very tricky problem that uh, modern society has with dealing with uh, Indigenous populations that have been colonised and basically brutalised and, and, you know, the genocide that comes with it. And it is a real – it's such a complex, complex um, issue to talk about, to think about as a as – a, you know, a, a civilian 
that's 50 to 100 years down the track of it all happening. I th- it's fascinating to watch countries like, well, pretty much every country, deal with it in their own way, Canada and America. I just don't know. I don't know if I, I could really weigh in on that ever because I, d- I think it's way too complex for me. So I don't know where the, why I even brought that up. Sorry. <laughs> no, but it, I mean, I think it's something that um, our industry is, is only just starting to engage with, uh, you know, the, the, the complete, um, you know, I feel like it, until now it really hasn't been on the agenda because it's, it's been too hot to touch, I think. And, um, but we see the impacts of that and, um, you know, I, I feel like we do need to step up um, as as an industry and you know as a collective um, um, to engage with these and and become um, comfortable with being uncomfortable and trying to navigate um, or even just start the conversation. And I think that um, yeah, for too long we've just done nothing because it's too hard. And um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I think we I have think a the level awareness is definitely much higher now. And that, that kind of, I think that's really healthy for a society just to be aware of the, the, the history and to know more about it and to be more educated about it. Like I can remember our, our childhood kind of history books just being completely edited, censored basically. Mm-hmm. Incredible. So, well, I mean, it is good. I, I watch my, my daughter comes home from kindy now and, you know, is singing Wajak Nunga songs and knowing about six season cycle based over here and all these kind of things that just we had no access to. And, you know, like you've had to kind of do all our own research and study from, you know, only in the last five, ten years and it's becoming so much more prevalent but so much further to go. And you just look about how hard it is to talk about just now, like this last kind of three or four minutes of conversation is because you have to be you're trying to be so careful but it's also because we're coming from such a place of, um, you know, of ignorance um, and, you yeah. know, Quan, you just spoke more eloquently about it than I'd heard in a long time and, Mon, you ran a whole conference on it with, you know, three days of talking about exactly this kind of stuff and, um, you know, it's still, as I said, it's just so nebulous and early and difficult but I think just, you know, empathy and acknowledgement is a good starting place but, again, what the fuck do I know? Yeah. <clears throat> and I also think, I think the most... Uh, wonderful thing about it is the acknowledgement of, of um, the science and the, the technologies and the, um, the information from those uh, Indigenous cultures that are so amazing and almost lost. I mean, a lot of it's lost, obviously, but with this awareness comes that kind of recollecting of that Indigenous knowledge, which is so important, especially at this turning point with us, with our climate and, you know, and, and awareness of ecology, which has been lost because of, of the capitalist's industrial revolution. We've just like pushed ourselves so far away from the source of things that it's just psychotic. Um, so that that is really a great optimism that I see with us talking about this, engaging in this conversation. If there's nothing you can do about the past, then at least you can like recollect that kind of information and have have like a respect for that kind of information, that kind of scientific scientific you know knowledge, which is incredible. Well, I have these funny moments. We do a, <clears throat> we do a lot of work with like hospitality and travel, and you know these kind of you know like moving to places. And there's like this idea of these five stages of luxury, where the first stage of luxury is you know like a, a blingy Rolex watch that you wear to show off to everyone. But then you move through to like the fifth stage of luxury is kind of the absence of things, of like nothingness, of, you know, that it's mm-hmm. actually about, you know, 
no Wi-Fi, shoes off, you know, kind of oneness with nature. And that kind of yeah. all that knowledge that's actually totally kind of housed within Indigenous, you know, nations that is actually now kind of like the pinnacle, the peak of, you know, capitalist society and this, you know, the total theological mismatch between those two things, you know, in kind of the current way of thinking, but, you know, that actually they're almost one and the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Have and you guys my favourite done- um, example recently has been around, you know, the fires that we've had in Melbourne and oh, actually, yeah. you know, embracing Indigenous knowledge around, um, around you know, uh, you know, fires and backburning and things like that and that it actually does align with, um, you know, my, my father was in the, you know, he owned a timber mill and, you know, is always kind of um, aggro at the way the mismanagement of the, the forests and actually yeah. it's sort of this interesting moment that, you know, you've got, um, you know, my, my dad is like a typical white boomer um, but actually, you know, that um, the way he feels about the industry, there is that beautiful alignment with Indigenous knowledge that it is being mismanaged and so I feel like there's a really nice opportunity now for um, those, those kind of um, bridges to be built that potentially, um, you know, are kind of um, unusual or unexpected and, you know, to, to bring people together and close that circle. Yeah, yeah. I think what it really brings to light is this kind of ability uh, of corporate culture to co-opt and to um, just really cover up that idea of of, of reality <laughs> so brilliantly. I mean, I just found out yesterday that BP was the uh, part of their great PR was coming up with the idea of carbon footprints. I had no idea that BP yeah, was behind that. that. That's bizarre, but that's that just happens so often in in this society, and it, it's just bullshit. And if you do, I, I read that. Have you read that great book by Kimura? Um, I'm trying to think of braiding sweetgrass. Have you read that before? Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful book about indigenous um, culture and knowledge. Uh, she's a botanist, but she's also a um, a Native American, and it's just all about her finding, reclaiming that old knowledge that she completely forgotten as she went through her her scientific um education in a western kind of way and then slowly reclaiming the language and finding out uh, just just the amazing subtle differences between cultures that really just say it all um the way that they have they have words uh that describe objects as as beings which just does not exist in english at all and just that that's, that simple thing can change your whole perspective on life and and um, the environment, ecology, how you fit in, because everything has a beingness, and it's embedded in the in the language, so you never forget it. Whereas we don't have that, and it's so easy to get this subterfuge where you're completely distanced from the things that are around you. you don't understand where anything's how anything's made, where it came from, what part of the earth it was dug up out of. Um, to begin with, and that that is like an incredible thing to realize that these indigenous cultures have that embedded in their language and embedded in their understanding at the fundamental heart of their their being is that knowledge, and to be able to get access to that is really really going to I think shift hopefully shift us towards a, a, a better path than we are currently going on. Hopefully. Yeah, I mean, I know. <laughs> but, yeah, hopefully. But, but yeah, the, tre- the trend is not looking good. 
<laughs> well, you know, that's the great thing about the universe as well. It has these balancing things in place, things like viruses, things like earthquakes and, <laughs> and volcanoes and all the rest of it. We just, you know, as long as there's, I mean, I don't know how important the human race is to you guys, particularly. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I wake up in the morning and, yeah, it wouldn't be so bad. I, I don't think I'd mind. Having kids maybe changed my attitude towards it, but not really that much. I feel like... <laughs> If we got if we got wiped out, it wouldn't really matter, obviously. And I think a lot of people do feel that. No, but it's like it's like the whole climate change argument of everyone going, "We need to save the planet." And it's like, no, planet doesn't care, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. The planet will still be here. Yeah, exactly. It's it's just that save ourselves doesn't yeah. look great on planets. No, it doesn't. Does at it? These protests, yeah. <laughs> no. Save <laughs> be, yourself. Be desperate. Yeah, exactly. But maybe that's actually the shift that we need, though, right? Because that's actually. It's actually true. We yeah, do need I think to save ourselves. There is definitely more of a, a shift towards that understanding, I feel. Um, and once again, it's that greenwashing that has occurred through the, the 80s and the 90s, by, particularly by corporations um, that are, I don't know, the embodiment of all, that's, all things that are selfish in a human, I feel. It feels like that anyway to me. Yeah. And sometimes once all again, you can do is, um, you know, try and make light of the situation. Like all you can do is bring humour and generosity and um, yeah. some delight to the world and hope that that's enough to, 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 to change something or at least make yourself a tiny bit happier. Yeah, totally. We've all, it's, you know, it's 100% mortality rate for everyone around. So, you know, like what's the point of, you know, not doing things or giving a shit or living well or being happy or all those kinds of things? Yeah, it's funny what we chase looking for answers. I mean, death is the ultimate answer for everyone and it's coming for you. So you will get that answer. So why why freak out about it now? You know, you're gonna get that answer. It's gonna happen for you. But yeah, we spend a lot of time just chasing strange stuff, that's for sure. Chasing those dangling apples. You would have seen a lot of that, um, you know, in the music industry or the people that you kind of brushed up against and watched these kind of like quite interesting trajectories of, you know, uh, I don't know whether it's, you know, being misaligned or chasing the wrong things or whichever way you want to think about it or talk about it, but kind of cautionary tales of, you know, like bright flashes or people that kind of haven't stayed the course or have been distracted by other things, you know, and, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I would think there'd be a lot of those kind of lessons that you would have seen in producing your own art and being your, doing your own creative enterprise that, you know, would have kind of helped guide in a way. Yeah, I mean, definitely. You know, the, the thing I like about uh, having been in the industry for so long and, and um, playing live shows and something I kind of miss um, about, you know, being on stage is I get to see my audience and how aged they look <laughs> compared to me. <laughs> they look terrible. It's because they've drunk so much alcohol and smoked so many cigarettes in my shows. <laughs> and it just makes me feel great about having made those choices when I was younger. <laughs> To not do that shit. Oh, so you'll, you'll, be, you'll be touring forever. That's great. I don't need to worry about never seeing a, not, not seeing a real no, show, show again. Some people are just pickled, right? Keith, I mean, how the hell did Charlie Watts die before Keith? It just doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> really strange. So, uh, it's that Mr. Burns thing. It's like in perfect balance. Everything's trying to get through the door at the same time. I guess so. I guess so. Sorry, that was facetious. I love my fans. I think that the fact that they've put up with me for this long is fucking incredible. <laughs> 
I, reckon, I don't know, but I kind of feel like everyone's aged about 10 years in the last two years though, right? Particularly Dan Andrews. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he's aged 20 or 30 years. Well, he's also got an old man sore back as well. So, you know, it's got oh everything. God. It's incredible. Watching those politicians when they go through these hell, hell periods, how much they age. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, like Obama's hair. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <It's not. laughs> well, no. Yeah. They're yeah. definitely tougher jobs out there, I can tell you. Are there though? Architecture, for example. No. Are there? I don't know. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's what you bring to it. It's what you, how, you know, how you bring yourself to it. Like, you know. I don't you can, know. You can, Having to please, I think being a politician is a lot harder than it looks. I mean, oh, it looks God, like yeah. it just like, yeah. yeah but, I mean, but, but, that's but a lot of people to try and balance the, the opinions of and, and the needs of, to me. It would be literally like, you know, dealing with a couple of million toddlers at once. Um, which would be a nightmare to me. I don't know how they do it. I mean, which is why I think they do such a terrible bloody job. Yeah, well, because it's I was, really I was going to say it, it, it draws a certain sort of person to it, doesn't it? You know, kind of. It does. Only, it does. You know, whatever whatever the, the personal motivations are, whether it's pursuit of power. Well, this is a sad or, thing. You know, it it really, just, yeah. Sorry. It chews up really good people. It does. But, I mean, I, re- I distinctly remember meeting Peter Garrett at. I think we did a Jabaluka. Um, an anti-Jabaluka uranium mine thing, which is the only show that I've ever been at where I cried because it was so moving. Hmm. We, uh, we were in a campsite uh, it, in the middle of, of um, Arnhem Land. Uh, I didn't get any sleep because there were so many mosquitoes. There was a torrential downpour in the middle of the night. So I, I think I woke up at 3 a.m. and sat in the car because it was just mud everywhere, mosquitoes everywhere. We had to play when... It was at dawn. They set up in front of this incredible red rock um, face uh, and we played a show. Our drummer wasn't there. He chickened out at last minute. So we got the guy from Coloured Stone, a little kid who was 17 to play drums for us. And I was like, we were all just wasted because we are so tired. And then um, Midnight All played and I just fucking lost it. Like I just was, it was so moving. Mm-hmm. But I distinctly remembered him going to move into politics and I was just like, what are you doing? It's kind of why do that? You're doing a much better job where you are. You're gonna have you're gonna you're a good person. You go into that field, you'll have your hands tied, and you'll fuck up, and they'll they'll crucify you in some way. You're, well, you're much more cynical or, or maybe wise than I, I am because I'm like you know I see people like that go into it. I'm like yes, fuck yes, go. You know, like you know, fix it, do it better. But, oh, then, you want, but then but then you, you realize it's actually so not badly. about the person. It's about the whole structural no. framework of it. That just you know exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And if you're in a system that corrupt and that difficult to wrangle, then it does just eat up good people. We had, um, we had yeah. Scott Ludlam over here who was doing an amazing job for a long time and then um, got caught out with the whole um, uh, citizenship or the birth, the, the birth certificate thing. There was, um, you, you know, there was a whole bunch, a few, like four or five of them all caught up, caught up with it at the same time. And um, really, he was the one that kind of just straight away just went, yep, you know, like hand up stuffed up and just stood aside. And then other people like Barnaby Joyce just like fought it, high court appeals, like went on and on forever and, you know, then got their pieces places back. And it was kind of like, you know, it was a real sort of demonstration of just like ethics and owning, you know, mistakes and kind of like, you know, high kind of personal integrity that I was like, you know, yeah. it was such, such a such, system like that. Yeah, no. And, you know, it's someone, someone who's demonstrated eight years of their life, no, sorry, given to eight years of their life to this cause and then just in this one tiny little trip up, has gone, yep, yeah. I'm sorry, out. 
Yeah, but yeah. Nick, I was just Great. thinking how you went to be government, yeah, you know, some I government can, position, right? I, like, I'm, 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 yeah, like, I can feel I can feel this very, very keenly. <laughs> I was like, um, <laughs> it's, it's exactly everything no. you said, Quan. It's um, you know, you. So I, I was inside the state government for a year, and um, right. yeah, you kind of it's it's exciting because you're like, great, you know, we've got you've got these levers at your hands, and you can kind of say we can make positive change or you make things better but then you kind of realize there's all these like hands further down the lever that kind of go no that doesn't move that way and no don't don't try pulling that one or we pulled that one five years ago and this happened so definitely don't pull that again and so you kind of get these really kind of invisible sort of you know restrictions that sort of stop things or even just like as you like you know the kind of not jumping at shadows but um you know perception is almost everything and that kind of like really stops a lot of a lot of things happening because you know i remember yeah i remember someone saying once that you know if you go to any great any city any great thing that's happened there has not been from you know like kind of a think tank or you know like a government decision or some kind of like you know uh report that's been written it's always like one maverick one person's gone do you know what would be fucking cool if we did you know like a fringe festival or if we did you know like if it was a giant stupid sculpture there or if we did this and, you know, yeah, that's sure. kind of like, you know, all things that move forward, move forward from the individual rather than from the group. And I know. yeah, and that, that's what I think is, you know, fundamentally structurally unsound about those kind of, but then, you know, what's the other way to do it? Then you're putting the power in the hands of one person and then everything's. Well, this is, this seems to be increasingly happening as well. I mean, people like Jeff Bezos, who goes, <coughs> I've got a billion dollars. I'm going to like going to the moon. this towards, <laughs> well, no, he's also, he's also decided to donate a billion dollars to, um, I don't know what it was exactly, some sort of social, what was it exactly? Oh, fuck, I can't remember now. But then, you, yeah, you have these kind of people with incredible amounts of wealth that are willing to dedicate, you know, uh, 10 times the amount that their governments are willing to ded- dedicate to to a cause. And you go, well, okay, there's, there's no responsibility. There's no, like, uh, how can we... How can we keep this guy accountable to anything at yeah, all? Is it going to the right people? Is it going to anything yeah. worthy? Like, you know, is it just a, a mate or a friend or it's just his, you yeah. know, general feeling or vibe, whatever it is? It's, yeah. I know, right. But that, but that, <clears> or, or is, is it purely, or is, or is he done the maths and worked out if I spend a billion dollars because he's worth trillions now? Or is, I don't know. Is, yeah. yeah. It's like if I spend a billion, that's going to push all the kind of, you know, bad press off my back. So it's actually kind of a good, you know, investment. A PR move. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which there was one that came out just this week where apparently, you know, there was news that all US Amazon staff were getting free college tuition, which, you know, is like, that was, that was the, that was the PR line, but then they dug into it. And what actually was, was that it was just all their internal training programs were getting branded by a US college. So it was like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how these people live with themselves. It's fucking insane. Why? I mean, why does anyone need that amount of money? Yeah. I really am of the opinion that these billionaires, uh, I mean, it should be illegal to be that yeah. wealthy. It seems ridiculous. No, and another thing which is like, you know, once you reach a certain level, let's call it, I don't know, 500 million. Well, they say, oh, we'll, we'll take, we'll take, we'll make a plaque, we'll put it, your name in a park. And, you know, you won, you won the, you won the, you won the, you won the race. You, know? you won life. You won yeah. life. Like, <laughs> insane, I mean, have you guys ever done any kind of like, uh, like retreats or anything that's kind of given you that sensory deprivation that you needed to get away from society before? I'm concerned about the, where this is going, but, um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, just like a like a silent retreat, anything like that. Have you ever? No, you know, no, nothing, it? nothing that's been structured that way. No. Yeah. Okay. No, no. I mean, it's just that you seem to be in search of a guru. I mean, I'm certainly <laughs> not going to fill the bill, but 
But if you've not tried it, I do recommend it. It does do something weird to your brain and it's definitely worth it. Like I did, I, I went to a very small place called Umahari uh, in, in just outside Kyoto. I just had my heart broken for the very first time by a, a woman who was almost going to become a Buddhist monk. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay, I'll give it a go. <laughs> and I went to this place and I, I was the only person that could speak in, uh, couldn't speak Japanese. And there were all these kind of wayward kids there. And um, I went in there and, and I was just like, okay, I'm going to do this silent retreat for seven days to <laughs> see how I go. I met the, the monk. He was very, very sweet. Um, we did the meditation like probably only three hours a day just sitting there in silence. He couldn't speak to anyone. Um, the food was insanely good, like so good. And the only thing the guy said to me in this kind of broken English, which I found really odd, and I, I, it still bothers me today, actually. I, f- I felt like maybe it was a personal koan or something that I have to work on. He just turned to me and said, Quan, I think you're very cool and very sexy. <laughs> and this, this is a guy, he, doesn't spe- he didn't speak any English to me the whole time at all. That's all he said to me. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm like dressed in like the, just plain linen. I've done nothing, you know, nothing about my background. It's, it was such a weird experience. But when I left there, the, just the amount of sensory deprivation that's like pushed upon you when you do that sort of stuff, it really does make the world seem so bright. It's so mm-hmm. amazing. Like it would be incredible to live like that. I don't know if I could ever do it, but it's a really great thing to, to do, to take a break from the chaos of modern life and just do something for yourself and yourself only and really just isolate your brain momentarily even for like a week it's i totally recommend it i reckon that's an awesome place to leave it (laughs) thank you that was amazing really really appreciate you taking the time you were really going to use it (laughs) i don't know was that worth it (laughs) that was amazing oh okay (laughs) thank you you. you're welcome that was fun thanks for having the chat i mean i've just i haven't talked to anyone for ages it's been great And that's a wrap. Please don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with somebody who needs to hear it. Wawawa have been called the Masters of Delight. To check out their colourful work, please visit wawawa.com.au and follow on Instagram at wawawaark. And Nick Brunson's responsive, inclusive and emotive projects can be seen at nickbrunson.com or on Instagram at the same name. Our intro and outro music is I'm Blessed from The Manifestation by Chris and Teeb. Until next time, Gert, signing off.